the Bible. This book has been vilified, has been challenged, attacked. The late 1800s, Wellhausen and Tubigen did a historical critique on this book. There has been hundreds of challenges against this book. And for very good reason. When you look at the Old and the New Testament, particularly the Old Testament, there's a, the belief is that much of the Old Testament was borrowed from other sources. And the reason is, very, is because the earliest manuscript that we use for the Old Testament is the Masoretic Text, which was written in 914 A.D. That's just a little over a thousand years ago. It's a very recent text. In fact, it's even more recent than the New Testament. So what are we going to do? Well... Historians say that a good bit of the stories that you see included in the Old Testament, the stories that you see in Genesis, and of course uh, the stories surrounding the Abrahamic period, the Mosaic period, up through the Davidic period, 1900 B.C., 1400 B.C., uh, Davidic period, 1000 B.C., these probably did not happen, but they were then borrowed from other accounts. Certainly the creation story and the, uh, the story of the flood, those would have been borrowed from other accounts because we see much earlier references to those stories. In particular, the Gilgamesh epic, the Gilgamesh epic which was written in 6th century B.C., the Gilgamesh epic which talks about the creation story. It's very similar to what you have in the Bible. And so historians believe that we cannot trust these stories because they are nothing more than these borrowings. We believe that Moses wrote the first five books of Moses, uh, including the book of Genesis, that Moses was responsible for writing the story about Abraham and all the others that we read up, including his own story. What are we going to do, though, to help these skeptics and the Muslims who go even one further step and believe that this book has been corrupted along the way by the Jews and the Christians, particularly the New Testament, and much of their attacks is against the New Testament writings? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to try to come up with answers to all of these challenges. Well, not all of them, but a lot of these challenges. We're going to try to show you how you can use a defense when these challenges are given. The Old Testament, we're going to look at the archaeological evidence. We're going to use a lot of the material that's come out of the British Museum. Uh, I lead a tour there uh, I've, uh, many weeks of the year. I go down to the British Museum. Uh, and the reason why is that the British themselves have scoured the world and they have grabbed as much as they could and stole it and brought it back to Britain and put it in that beautiful building. And now many people have vilified them for doing that, but thank God they did it. Because had they not brought it back and preserved it, it would not be there for us to look at. Much of that material that they have there in the British Museum would have been lost. It would have been sold, would have been broken up, put into mortar, put into buildings. The British saved it for our legacy because much of the material there is a legacy of what we're going to see in the Bible. Now, you may want to ask, hold on a minute, the Bible doesn't claim to be a historical book. But in order to answer this question on its credibility, on its authenticity, we need to go to history. Why? Because the Bible is full of history. There are four things that we need to look at to answer this question. There are four historical questions we need to answer. Basically, we need to look at people who live in history. We need to look at the places that exist in history. We need to look at the events that happen in history. And we need to look at the timelines or the time periods that they claim. And it's those four areas that we're going to do now. We're going to look at many of those names, places, peoples, events, dates as well. And we're going to see if there's any extra biblical evidence that supports them to prove that this book is accurate when it deals with history. We're not going to prove that this is the Word of God. I wouldn't have the audacity to assume that I can make that, that statement tonight. What I'm going to say is that when it deals with events that did happen in history, 
And we can find extra-biblical material that happened at the same time, at the same places, with the same people. In every case, the Bible is accurate. And if it's accurate at that, on those details, then we can trust what else it has to say. Okay, let's go ahead and let's start out with the first accusation concerning whether or not it has used an awful lot of borrowed material from other sources. Now, I guess let's start then with the, the accusation more specifically concerning the creation account. Because you do have the creation account in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And you also then have the flood account a little later. And those are the two areas that we see repeated in many other, in many other documents. The Gilgamesh epic does talk about the creation account. It's very similar to the one we have in the Bible. So many historians believe that that may be the original. That may be the source for what we have written here. The problem is, if you come down to the British Museum, I'll show you a new tablet that has been on display there, which is called the Atrahasis tablet, which also has almost the same story about uh, creation, but it was written in 1635 B.C., over a thousand years earlier than the Gilgamesh epic. So why not consider that as the source? It hasn't changed in over a thousand years. Can you see the problem? suggesting that maybe both the Gilgamesh epic and the Atrahasis tablet are using a much older source. Now, we know the Atrahasis actually predates the books of Moses because Moses would have been writing in about 1400 B.C. It's when you start asking these kind of questions that it starts getting pretty interesting. Now, let's look at the flood accounts because there is a flood account in the Atrahasis tablet. Also, there is a flood account from the 6th century B.C., similar to the flood account that we have here. But then you might find many flood accounts. In fact, what we now know is that there's over 200 flood accounts. Almost every culture has a flood account. The native Indians have a flood account. So do the Chinese, which seems to suggest, again, that if they all have a flood account, maybe they are pointing back to an original flood account, which is what the Bible is speaking of. We can't prove that. We can't disprove that, because that is almost prehistory. That goes beyond any written record. What can we prove? Well, one of the things that uh, historians look for whenever they're trying to find credibility in an archaic text is what they call embellishment. Deletions, accretions, things like this. And Muslims help me out with this because they are also looking for this, but they're looking from the wrong angle. Muslims always come up to me and say, listen, Mr. Smith, how can you consider this to be the word of God? It is full of prophets who sin. David sins. Look at the sin that's in that prophet. That, uh, that your scriptures. Look at this sin of Abraham. In fact, every one of the prophets sin in your Bible. And my goodness, look at Rahab. She's a prostitute for heaven's sakes. Why would God ever use a prostitute in the line of succession going down to David? Now, what are they saying here? Well, basically, they're speaking from their own paradigm. They're speaking from their own cultural grid. Because when you look at their prophet, Muhammad, you will see that he's pretty amazing. In fact, he's so amazing that he's the best in every category. Have you noticed that the prophet Muhammad is the best husband? He's the best father. He's the best lover. He's the best king. He's the, basically, he's the best warrior in every category. He is the model. Which seems to suggest to me that there has been an embellishment. And when you look at the story of the prophet Muhammad, you ask when was it written down. It was not written at the time that Muhammad lived. It was written much, much later. In fact, the first record we have of Muhammad's life was written by a man named 
uh, Ibn Ishaq. Ibn Ishaq died in 765. Muhammad died in 632. You can see already that there's over 100 years difference. More than that, we don't have Ibn Ishaq's um, documents. We can't go to Ibn Ishaq to know exactly what he said about Muhammad. We have to go to one of his students named Ibn Hisham who died in 833. If Muhammad died in 632, Ibn Hisham died in 833. That's 200 years. 200 years before we hear the first reference to any, any uh, biography of Muhammad. 200 years of what? 200 years of oral tradition. 200 years of embellishment. So the very thing the Muslims are looking for is what they see in their own prophet. When they come back to my scriptures, suddenly they don't like the sins that are there. And I th shake their hands when they say that. I say, thank you for doing that. Because in de su suggesting that these sins invalidate its historicity, you're actually proving its historicity. Because when a historian looks at that, the fact that the sins are left in proves its authenticity. See, had the Hebrews or the Jews had wanted to change it, don't you think they would have thrown those sins out? The fact that they left them in there proves their credibility. Look at the New Testament, much the same. In the New Testament, you have the disciples running away from Jesus when he is going to be arrested. Now, that's pretty embarrassing. A few hours later, Peter denies Christ three times. That's pretty embarrassing. What about Paul? Look at Paul. Everything he did, he got wrong. He didn't get along with anybody, including his own other disciples. Don't you think if they had wanted to re, uh, uh, delete something or sanitize it, don't you think they would have thrown those out? The fact that they left those embarrassing parts in the New Testament proves its credibility historically. Thank God that the Old Testament writers and the Gospel writers did not throw out those desultory, what we call bad breath material. Because they left them in proves their credibility. And that's why historians are now looking anew at the Old Testament, and they're looking anew at the New Testament. Let's start with the Old Testament. Are there anything, are there any facts, are there any criteria that we can use to help support the historicity of the Old Testament? Let's start with the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, you have some cities that have always been disputed by the historians, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, the city of Ur. You have the Hittites, for instance. The Hittites, which have always been doubted. In Genesis 36, verse 2, you have the reference to the Hittites. And historians have said, we don't know of any people called Hittites. We don't know of any city called Sodom and Gomorrah. Herodotus, the great historian, Thucydides, both Herodotus and Thucydides, who were writing in the 5th century, they don't mention any place called Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, we would say, oh, that seems obvious, because Sodom and Gomorrah were not existing at the time of Herodotus or Thucydides. They were destroyed long before that time. In fact, we know they were destroyed at the time of Abraham in 1900 B.C. But how are we going to prove that? Why are we going to prove this city of Ur? How are we going to prove about the Hittites? How are we going to prove that the story of Abraham is true? Many historians believe that this is not true, that much of the, of the story of Abraham could not have written by Moses. In fact, it used to be that they didn't believe that Moses, that anybody could write at the time of Moses. Now, that's been disputed long, long ago. If you come down to the British Museum in London, I will show you writing that goes back to 4000 BC. So, writing has been around a lawful long time. That's no longer in doubt. But what we can say, and what the historians are trying to say, is that certainly the story of Abraham is something that is not, probably not written by Moses in 1400 B.C. It was probably written probably in the 6th century B.C. and redacted back to the 14th century B.C. or 15th century B.C. I'm sorry, back to the time of Abraham, so it would be the 20th century B.C. What are we going to do to help uh, alleviate these accusations? Well, we don't have to do too much. Things have been done for us. And that's the beauty of historical criticism. 
you come to the British Museum, I'll show you some tablets that have been found. In fact, there have now been four genre of tablets that have been found. The Mari tablets, the Nuzi tablets, both out of the Euphrates Valley in Mesopotamia, which is present-day Iraq. The Ebla tablets, which come from Syria. And the Amarna tablets, which come from Egypt. And it's these four families of tablets that have now been discovered in the last century, which are now starting to piece together what we see in the Genesis account. And they're exciting what they're telling us. Let's start with Abraham himself. And let's start and ask, what do we know about Abraham? Well, we know quite a bit about Abraham. We know that it was Abraham that um, uh, had all these customs that went on. We know that there's an awful lot that was happening in Abraham's life. If, according to historians, if this was written in the 6th century, then pretty much what was writing, if they're writing in the 6th century of what was happening in the 20th century, they would get many things wrong. Yet we've come across the Mari tablets, which, uh, the Mari tablets, which talk about the Ariyuk, or the Ariyak, which is found in Genesis 14. They mention the places Nahor and Haran, which are also found in Genesis 24, verse 10. And they also mention the name Benjamin and the Haperu. Haperu? Hold on to that. We're going to come back to that a little bit later. The Nuzi tablets are even more exciting. The Nuzi tablets, which have been found in the Mesopotamian area, they were written around 1800 B.C., so they're written just after the time of Abraham. They talk about customs in that part of the world. They talk about the fact that a father can give a slave girl. They talk about the fact that a, a, a dowry has to be paid off for someone's wife and that you can be given a dowry. They talk about the fact that when you uh, steal a cult god, that it's a capital offense. All these different customs. In fact, we know of seven or eight different customs that are specific to the Abrahamic story that are all found in the Nuzi tablets. Yet if somebody had been writing this in the 6th century B.C., how would they have known about these customs? Because every one of these customs would no longer have been in existence in the 6th century. They would all died out. Proving that whoever wrote the Genesis account had to have been privy to that knowledge. But Moses wasn't privy to that knowledge. He wasn't living then. Moses was living in 1400 B.C. How did he know what was happening in 1900 B.C. so accurately? Well, there's only two possibilities. Either this is very good oral tradition, or this is divine knowledge. I prefer the latter. What we do know is that almost all the tablets that are now coming out, the Mari and, the, and certainly the Nuzi tablets from just after the time of Abraham, they put Abraham in the right century, in the right place, at the right time. That's the beauty of this. And then they came across the Ebla tablets. Now... There was a mound in Syria, and whenever archaeologists find these mounds in the desert, they call them tells. And they love these tells because they know that underneath these tells are many, many, many cities. And they start digging down to the different layers of this tell, tell Marduk, they called it. And as they started digging down, they came down to the 2300-year period. 2300, that's 400 years before Abraham. In that, in that level, they found a room whose roof had imploded on itself. And at the floor of that room were 17,000 tablets, all written in cuneiform. When they started looking through these tablets, they came across one tablet in particular. One tablet with the names of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zebun, and Zoar. Ooh, two, 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 two. See what we've got here? We've got reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the first and only reference anywhere in the world to prove that Sodom and Gomorrah did exist. They're written on this tablet, written 400 years before the time of Abraham. No wonder Herodotus or Thucydides didn't know about it. But here's the interesting thing. Did you hear the sequence I've just said? Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zebuim, and Zohar. What does that mean? Well, we know where Adma is. We know where Zebuim is. We know where Zohar are. In fact, if you look at them, they follow a line. In fact, they follow a trade line. 
This is a trade route. Much when you look at the five cities of the Levant, we always talk about the five cities of the Levant. We place them on the map and we talk about them. Over here we talk about Basra, Baghdad, Damascus, Jerusalem, and Cairo. What are we doing? We're following a line on a plane, aren't we? The same thing can be happened with these five cities. You're following a line on a plane, a trade line on the plane. Now hold on a minute. Have you heard those five cities in that order before? Yes, you have. If you've read Genesis chapter 14, verse 8, you will see the exact same five cities in the same order that were found on the Ebla tablets, proving that these cities were not only consequential for the people in the time of Ebla, but also at the time of Abraham. But hold on a minute. Abraham didn't write Genesis 14, 8. Moses wrote Gen Genesis 14, 8. Moses was living in 1400 B.C. How would he have known to put Sodom and Gomorrah before Adma, Zebu, and Zor? He wasn't there. These were, had been destroyed 400 years before he wrote this down. Where did he get this knowledge from? <laughs> well, pretty good oral tradition or maybe divine knowledge again. Can you see how accurate the Bible is? Not only does the Ebla tablets prove that the existence of these two cities, it also coincides exactly with Genesis 14, 8. What do we do with the Hittites? Always been suspicious. Well, let's, before we get to the Hittites, what are we going to do with the city of Ur? Ur was always a doubt, but it's no longer doubted anymore. If you were to come to the British Museum with me, I'll show you two rooms in the British Museum that have now been designated for the city of Ur. You will find the standard of Ur right there, dated to 2600 B.C. 700 years before Abraham, you'll see the standard of Ur. Right next to it, you'll see a ram who's eating out of a bush. It's a, it's a part of a, a, a table leg, and it's made out of a lapis lazuli and beautiful gold engraving, showing the sophistication that existed there in Ur in 2700 B.C. This is the same city that Abraham came out of that he was asked to leave in 1900 B.C., proving how sophisticated, how civilized a place that God would, had taken him out of. Ur no longer is doubted. Everybody knows Ur exists. The Bible was the first to tell us so. History just caught up with us. Good stuff, isn't it? What about the Hittites? They have now found the Hittites. They have found that the Hittites were entirely an enormous civilization. It was the Hittites who discovered horses and chariots. It was the Hittites who gave the chariots to the Egyptians. And it was the Hittites who were the ancestors of the Medes. Remember, it was the Medes, it was Darius the Mede, who in 539 destroyed Babylon. But stop and think, where else have we heard about the Medes? The Medes were also the first people to become Christians at the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost, when they started speaking in different tongues, some of the first people to become Christian were Medes, who were the descendants of the Hittites. Who are the Medes today? They are the Kurds. The Kurds, and when you talk to any Kurds, what do they tell you? They tell you that they are 99% or 100% Muslim. And I say to my Kurdish friends, hold on a minute. Where does your history go back to? It goes back to Muhammad. I said, no, it doesn't. Come on, you Kurds. Your history predates Muhammad. It predates way beyond Muhammad. In fact, you were a Christian before my people were Christians. You have more of a right to be a Christian than I do because you are some of the first Christians that ever existed. You Kurds, forget about Muhammad. Go back and resurrect your history again. In fact, you were the people that God used to destroy Babylon. It was God that used you to destroy Babylon in 539. Look at your history. You were the people that were the Hittites that discovered not only how to tame horses, but to create chariots. You've got an enormous history. Please stop looking back to Abraham. I'm sorry, back to Muhammad. Go way beyond that. Go back and resurrect your past, of which also includes Jesus Christ.
thank God for the history that we have. And we need to help the Kurds to resurrect their ancestry, to prove that God has used them all the way through history. Now, let's continue and let's get a little more recent. Let's talk about the 9th century BC, because here's where it starts to get exciting, because here's where it starts to impact on the history of the Israel itself. 9th century BC, you have a great, big, great kingdom called the Assyrian kingdom. The Assyrians who lived in what is today northern Iraq. There are four main cities that exist in the Assyrian kingdom. You had Nimrud, you had Balawat, you had Kosabad, and you had Nineveh. And you had the great Assyrian kings who were the ones who basically were the superpower of their day. At least we think they are. I'm going to dispel that in a few minutes. Because the Bible is going to tell me something different. But for now, let's talk about the Assyrians. Let's start with Shalmaneser III. Shalmaneser III um, was living in the mid-9th century. Now, that's the time that Ahab was living. Ahab was a very evil king. We see in 1 Kings chapter, chapter 22 that Ahab did not get along with his, his fellow neighbor king called Ben-Hadad. And the two of them were warring back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then suddenly they put their weapons down. We don't know why they put their weapons down. In chapter 22, it doesn't tell us. But what we do know is that the III, the great Assyrian king was coming down and he was attacking Irhuleni, the great king of Hamath. We know that because there's a stella in the British Museum. And you'll see the stella there written in cuneiform and it talks about that battle in the mid-9th century. He comes down and he attacks Irhuleni. Idhuleni cannot repulse this great Assyrian king, so he asks for help. He asks the other 11 kings of the plain to come to his help, including Ben-Hadad and Ahab. Now suddenly we realize why Ben-Hadad and Ahab put down their weapons. The stella shows us that they had to come to repulse Shalmaneser III, to come and help Idhuleni repulse Shalmaneser III. There's the first evidence for 1 Kings chapter 22, extra-biblical evidence. That's what we're looking for. You want another evidence? If you were down at the British Museum, I'd take you about 15 feet away to a big black obelisk. Black, it's called the black obelisk. It's actually gray now because now they've washed it up. It was discovered by the British there in Nimrud, the city of Nimrud. And it, it, it talks about a... Well, let me, before I tell you what it talks about, let me talk, let's finish the story of Ahab. We do know in 2 Kings chapter 9 and 10 that Ahab died and that Elisha, the prophet Elisha, comes to the captain of the guard named Jehu. Who is Jehu? He's the captain of the guard. The Bible tells us that. Is he historical? Can we prove that? Yes, we can. See, a lot of the historians look at that and they say, these are nothing more than mythological names. These are nothing more than legendary names. Well, that is not the case if you look at the black obelisk. Because on the black obelisk, on the second top panel from the top, is a picture of a king over here with his retainers, and there's a man bowing down to him. And the man that's bowing down to him, according to the cuneiform at the very bottom, is Jehu, king of Israel. It says it right there in cuneiform. That's a picture of Jehu. The British have it. The British discovered him. It's the oldest picture we have of any king anywhere in the world. It's right there in the British Museum. And there he is in golden detail so that we now know that not only is 2 Kings chapter 9 and 10 correct, 1 Kings chapter 22 is correct as well. We have the name, the date, the place, the event of all the four things we're looking for. You want a third evidence? I'll take you another about 50 feet over, and I'll show you another glass cabinet there in the British Museum, and you can see a ruins of the city of Balawat. Now, this is the city that um, Shalmaneser III had to, dis had to basically erect for himself. It was his summer palace. And when the uh, archaeologists dug down to the 9th century, mid-9th century, they came across some hinges, some hinges to a large, large door. The second top hinge of that door shows some soldiers being led uh, in captivity with their hands chained behind their backs. And it says in cuneiform at the bottom that these are 
Idhuleni's soldiers from Hamath, proving that what we see in 1 Kings chapter 22 was correct. This was the battle that not only helped destroy or was began to destroy Idhuleni, but because Ahab and Ben-Hadad came to his aid and the other, other nine kings came to his aid, they then repulsed Shalmanes III and sent him packing back up to Nimrud again. There's the third evidence that supports not only 1 Kings chapter 22, but 2 Kings chapter 9 and 10. Now, if we were to jump to kings, we would come to Tiglath-Pileser, who's dated to 745 to 727, the 8th century. Tiglath-Pileser is another important king because he's also important for our story. That's why we're looking at him. We're not looking at the other five kings in between because they are, do not come down to Phoenicia or they do not come down to Israel. Tiglath-Pileser does. He comes twice to Israel and he attacks Israel and he's mentioned nine times in our Old Testament. He's mentioned primarily in Second Kings chapter 15. I'm sorry, yeah, Second Kings chapter 15 and First Chronicles chapter 5. He's mentioned as Tiglath-Pileser III. But that's not the only reference that's given to him. In the Bible, he's also mentioned as Pul. Now, it's always been a curiosity for the historians. Who is this Pul? Only the Bible mentions him like this. On the mural there on the wall, there in the British Museum, you will see in cuneiform that the, that, that the man that is pictured there on the left is Tiglath-Pileser III. And is de, he's uh, ruling there in Nimrud in the mid-8th century. But it mentions that his nickname is Pul. Proving that the Bible's correct. The Bible's the only place anywhere in the world that mentions him by his nickname. And it wasn't until they finally, the British found Nimrud that they came across this one mural that they proved that the Bible is even more correct than the historians. The historians didn't know who this pull was. Now they know. That's the nickname of Tiglath-Pileser III. Proving that whoever wrote Second Kings and First Chronicles had been living at that time, had been privy to that, that knowledge, showing how accurate our Bible is. We jump another two kings, we come to Sargon II. Sargon II, uh, his dates are 722 to 701. And we read about him in 2 Kings chapter 17. Sargon II we also read about in Isaiah chapter 20 verse 1. He's actually mentioned by name. Sargon II we know is the king who comes and attacks the ten northern tribes of Israel, takes him into captivity up to Assyria. He is the one that built the great city of Korsabad. And then what he does, he takes a lot of his people to go back down to Israel to repopulate the cities that he's left behind. They then marry with the people that are left behind and out of their progeny come the Samaritans. Why do I say that? Why is that important? Well, this book here, the Quran, tells us that when Moses went up to Mount Sinai, this is in 1400 BC, when he went up to Mount Sinai, it was a Samaritan who built the golden calf. Now stop and think that through. Moses lived in 1400 BC. Sargon II created the Samaritans out of the progeny of the people he brought back into the, the defeated cities. So that could not have happened because, uh, until the 8th century. Yet the Quran tells us there were Samaritans in the 15th century. Can you see a problem with that? See, the Quran's full of these kind of errors. This is a historical anachronism. How can you have a Samaritan living in 1500 B.C. when they were not invented until the 8th century B.C.? Okay, do you see the problem? Thank God for this architecture. Thank God for these artifacts. Thank God that we can look at these artifacts, put them together, put dates on them, and realize that they corroborate the Bible, but in the same time, they're corroborating the events that we see in the Bible. They eradicate the authority for the Quran in one fell swoop. They put one up and the other one down. But it's not Sargon II that I like. I like his son, Sennacherib. He's exciting. You should all know about Sennacherib. Sennacherib, his dates are 704 to 681. 
We read about Sennacherib in 2 Kings chapter 19. Uh, also, we read about him in Isaiah chapter 37. Sennacherib comes and does what his father did not do. He decides to attack the, the tribe of Judah. Now, the tribe of Judah was the tribe that stayed very close to the Lord. At the time that Sennacherib was living, uh, the king at that time was Hezekiah, who was a very righteous king. And he attacks the tribe of Judah and destroys all the fortified cities. He only has two cities left to go, Tarak, uh, Lachish, sorry, Lachish and Jerusalem. Now, when the British went to Lachish, they came across a lot of the artifacts from that battle. And in that, on the, uh, in that you'll see they found some arrowheads and some stones from the rocks. But they also went to Nineveh because Nineveh is the city that Sennacherib built. And when they went to Nineveh, they found the Lachish room. This is the room that depicts that battle. It's on a wall. They didn't have newspapers and they didn't have radio or television at that time. So they would put a mural along the wall with art, pictures, of pictures of the battle all the way along it. And in that room, they came across a prism. The man who found it was named Taylor, so they call it the Taylor prism. And in the prism is a six-sided prism. On one of the panels is the story of Lachish. And it mentions seven things. I can't remember the top of my head exact seven things, but the seven things that it mentions exactly parallel what we see in 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 17 and also, I'm sorry, Second uh, Kings uh, chapter 19, I said that, and sec- no, Second Kings chapter 19, Isaiah chapter 37. I'll get it correct. You just bear with me. Second Kings chapter 19 and Isaiah 37. First of all, it mentions that Hezekiah rebelled against Sennacherib. So we now know that Hezekiah is historical. He's mentioned on the Taylor prism. It mentions that Sennacherib comes and destroys all the fortified cities. That also agrees with Second Kings chapter 19. It mentions that Lachish also fell, but Jerusalem didn't. It mentions that Hezekiah pays 30 talents of gold to basically in homage to Sennacherib. It didn't work, obviously. And then it mentions, along with 2 Kings 19 and Isaiah 37, that Sennacherib, when he came to Jerusalem, he suddenly went home. But it doesn't tell us why. Now, you'd like to know why Sennacherib suddenly went home, don't you? Wouldn't you like to know? I know the historians would love to know, but it doesn't say on the Taylor prism. So where are you going to go to find out what, went, what happened or why he had to suddenly go home? You've got to come to the Bible. You've got to come to this book. This is the only book that tells us what was going on. And what this book says in Isaiah 37 and 2 Kings 19 is that he had to go back to Nineveh because somebody was attacking his southern flank. And that somebody who was attacking his southern flank was named Tirhaka or Taharka, depending on where you put the vowels. Now, who in the world is this Taharka? There is no reference to anybody called Taharka in any of the, and certainly in any of the historians. Herodotus does not know of any Taharka. Thucydides doesn't talk about any Taharka. And historians have always doubted whether this is a real historical character. They always thought, again, that this is another legendary mythological character that is always written in the Bible. Well, the British Museum has now solved the problem for us. The British Museum has now found who Taharka is. But I'm going to wait on that. I'm not going to tell you who he is right now. Let's go and, and let's come back to him. No, let's do talk about that. Let's do talk about who this Taharka is. If you come to the British Museum and you come into the Egyptian room, you will find out who he is. But in order to know who he is, you're going to have to be able to read the writing along the base of this one statue, a statue of a ram. And there's a man standing between the legs of the ram who's named Taharka. But the British and the French didn't know how to read that because the language that was used was hieroglyphics. Hieroglyphics was a lost language. No one knew how to read it until the Rosetta Stone was discovered in the 1800s. When they came across the Rosetta Stone, they were able to look at it because on the Rosetta Stone, it had three different languages. 
It had hieroglyphics, it had demotic, and it had Greek. They knew demotic, they knew Greek, and by looking and comparing the hieroglyphics with the other two languages, they were able to reproduce the hieroglyphic alphabet. And by doing that, they could then unlock all the artifacts, and that's where Egyptology came into existence. It was the British and the French that discovered it. It was them that invented it. And it was they that finally looked at this one artifact that they had in this crate there in one of the 17 warehouses all over London. They came across this one little crate, and there in the bottom was the reference to Tiraka. He has now been discovered, and the British Museum has discovered it. He was a Kushite king. He was a Kushite king whose dominion was spread all the way from Ethiopia in the east all the way to Senegal, what would be called Senegal today. That whole part of North Africa was under his jurisdiction. He was a superpower of his day. He was so important, in fact, you can now understand why when Sennacherib suddenly went home, he had to go home because this was the other superpower that nobody seemed to know about. Nobody knew about him except the Bible. The Bible is the only place that mentions him by name. Now, a few years ago, I found it fascinating in the newspaper I read that they have come across the Kushite burial chambers in the, in the, in the deserts of Egypt. And they, as they came across these burial chambers, these pyramids that are underground, they noticed that the largest pyramid was the pyramid of this man named Teharka, or Tirhaka. And they looked at it and they said, it seems, to, to, it seems rather curious, but this man named Teharka was the last of the great Kushite kings. And something happened during his raids that started the decline of the Kushites. They don't know what it is. And I'm raising my hand over here, and I said, I know what it is. If you just come back to 2 Kings chapter 19, and if you just come back to Isaiah 37, it'll tell you the answer. The answer is right there in the Bible. What started the decline of the Kushites? It was Sennacherib that started that decline. As... as Tiraka came to attack him, thinking he would be away down, way down there in Israel. He comes back and destroys Tiraka. He comes back a broken man, which started to decline. It's right there in the Bible. If they just come back to the Bible, they would read it right there in black and white. And that's why I love this whole process. See, the more they scratch, the more they find. The more they find, the more we shine. Oh, how sublime. No wonder they whine. <laughs> this is what history does. They're basically doing the work for us, aren't they? They are the ones who are finding the rocks. Now, if we're not going to cry out, the rocks are going to cry out. The rocks are basically reproducing our history for us. They are the ones that are finding our material. We don't even have to do it. We just have to sit back and let them find it. And they're finding what we've already known. In this case, we've known about Tidhaka for 2,700 years. They're just now catching up. Good stuff, isn't it? But we still haven't finished with Sennacherib. We've got to come back with Sennacherib. Okay, let's come back to Sennacherib. And let's come back to the... Um, uh, 8th century to the 7th century, around 6, 681, Sennacherib then comes back to Jerusalem a second time after he's destroyed and taken care of this mysterious king who's no longer mysterious. We now have him pictured in the British Museum. The Bible is very clear as to who he is. He then comes back to Jerusalem a second time, doesn't he? There's a mural in the British Museum that depicts that event. And it mentions there in cuneiform that he comes back with his whole army. Now, Picture the scenario. Sennacherib comes all the way from Nineveh. He comes all the way down to Jerusalem. It's a long journey. He's tired. He goes to bed that night in his tent. The next morning, he stretches. Oh, I think he does anyhow. And then he opens up the flap of the tent. And what does he see when he looks outside? Well, you're going to have to come back to the Bible to see what he sees. But I'm going to come back to it because I'm going to hold on to that a minute. I'm going to see what the, that panel tells me. Because when you go to the panel in the British Museum, you will see that it says nothing. It just says he comes to Jerusalem and then he suddenly goes home. That's all it says. It doesn't tell you anything. Now, 
when you look at the British Museum, when you look at all these panels and these tablets and these murals and these obelisks and these stellas, they're huge, they're expensive. The only people that can make these large objects are kings themselves. That's why the whole history of the Assyrian period, the Babylonian period, are all basically the history of the kings. It's their history. That's the, they're the only people rich enough to make these objects. And they're the only ones that want us to know their history. And when they're writing their history, they want to do something very clearly, and that is they only want to tell you what went right. Well, they're just like politicians today, aren't they? Don't politicians do that? Does anybody ever, any politi have you known of any politician that admits that they may have done something wrong? No politician in his right mind would do that. We call that political spin. Well, look at they're not the first to do it. The Assyrians were doing it way back in the 9th and 8th century BC. It's been around as long as we've known politicians. And that's exactly the problem with these murals. They only tell you the, what they want you to know. You only hear history from their perspective. You only hear the history from the winner's perspective. You heard this many times before. I'm not telling you anything new. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. Here's that mural, and all it says is he comes to Jerusalem, and he suddenly goes home. Well, I'd like to know why he went suddenly home. Why is there no, no reference to any conquest? Because that's what kings do. They conquer. They conquer, and when they conquer, they tell about their conquests. Every one of those stories is full of their conquest. Most of the murals are basically talking about their conquests. They talk about how many kings they've destroyed, how many cities they've been leveled to the ground, how much booty they brought back home. Yet there's no reference to it anywhere on the Hezekiah mural. We call it the Hezekiah mural because it mentions Hezekiah by name. Again, like the Taylor prism. So what are we going to do? Well, if you go upstairs, you will find the Babylonian Chronicles. The Babylonian Chronicles mention that when Sennacherib returns home back to Nineveh, his two sons rise up and kill him. Now, why in the world would his two sons kill a king who has just destroyed one of the other great superpowers of his day? That character named Tiraka that the Bible only knows about. Why in the world would they destroy the king at the height of his power unless something embarrassing happened? What happened in Jerusalem? What happened outside of Jerusalem? Let's go back to that scenario I left you at. He stretches, right? He's stretching, waking up, opens the flap, and what does he see? You're going to have to go back to 2 Kings chapter 19. You're going to have to go back to Isaiah 37. 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 9. Isaiah chapter 37, and you see it specifically. When he looks out, he sees 185,000 of his men lying there on the ground, dead. 185 of his soldiers, decimated. He didn't remember or hear any battle in the night. He heard no clanking of swords. He heard no screams or shout of pain. He never saw any other soldiers, no Jewish soldiers there. Can you imagine putting yourself in his place? What would you do in his place? Well, I'd get home pretty quick, wouldn't I? And that's exactly what he, what he did. And that's why the Babylonian Chronicles, when they mention when he came home, you can imagine all the relatives of those 185,000 men, they would want to know what had happened to their men. They would be there questioning, where are our men? What happened to them? What is he going to do? How is he going to explain this? There was no battle. There is no booty. No one was conquered. 185,000 men dead. Can you see why it's embarrassing? No wonder his sons rose up and killed him. But none of that is on this mural. So what is the historian going to do? What's he going to do? How is he going to answer this question? The only way he can answer this question is to come back to the Bible. Is come, to come back to 2 Kings chapter 19, Isaiah 37. But he's not going to do that for two very good reasons. Because if he comes back and listens to the story in the Bible, he's first of all going to have to accept that there's a God. Secondly, he's going to have to accept that that God enters time and space and impacts on human history.
Can you see the dilemma for the historian? They do not want to accept that. So all they're going to do is accept what they see on the mural and call it a mystery. It's not a mystery to us. See, there is the beauty. We can put both of them together, both the Bible and the artifacts. Both the Bible and the murals can be put together. We need the murals. We need the obelisks. We need the stellas. Why? Because they place it in history. They put the stories in a time frame. They put the people in the right places, in the right events, using the right, certainly the right times. And that's why we need to make sure that we put the two together. We need the historical artifacts because it gives it historicity. But we need the Bible because it gives us the rest of the story. This is God's story. But it's historical. It did happen with the right people in the right places at the right time. Good stuff, isn't it? That's why I love the Bible. That's why I love the Old Testament. Now I'm going to jump to Daniel. Daniel I love. See, Daniel the historians don't like. Daniel has always been a problem for the historians. They've always hated Daniel. And the reason they don't like Daniel is because Daniel deals with something that historians don't like, much like we saw earlier with Sennacherib. They don't like it because what Daniel does is he talks about that which is going to happen in the future. He talks about prophecy. In the book of Daniel, you'll have reference to four kingdoms. Now, two of them are not prophetic because uh, they talk about Babylon. Well, Daniel's living in Babylon. We're in the 6th century B.C. now. He's living in Babylon, so that's not prophetic. Uh, they talk about Darius, who under the auspice of Cyrus the Great, destroys Babylon in 539. Well, that's not prophetic because Daniel was there. He was privy to that. He was a eyewitness to that event. But then they talk about, Daniel talks about two other kingdoms. About the Greeks, who don't exist until the 3rd century. That's 300 years later. And then the Romans, who don't exist until the 2nd century. That's 400 years later. No wonder the historians don't like it. How could somebody living in the 6th century know what's going to happen in the 3rd and the 2nd century? No, that they don't like because nobody can know the future like that. So what the historians have done is they have tried to find any, any error in the book of Daniel. And they have scoured the book of Daniel to find any error and they found it. And it has to do with Belshazzar. See, in the book of Daniel, Belshazzar is the king that, under, uh, that Daniel is working under, isn't he? Belshazzar is there. In fact, Belshazzar has that great feast, and there's that writing on the wall, and he has, can anybody interpret that writing for me? And Daniel comes and interprets it for him, and then he turns to Daniel, and he said, because of what you have done, you will be number three in my kingdom. It says that in Daniel chapter 5, verse 16. Now, we, many people have queried, why number three? If Belshazzar is number one, wouldn't he be number two? That's a mystery. That's kind of a, we're going to answer that in a little while, but hold on to that. But certainly, the difficulty is that Belshazzar is the wrong person. Why do we know that? Well, if you come to the British Museum, I'll show you. When you go up into the Mesopotamian room, when you go into the Babylonian room specifically, you can see all the artifacts from that time period, from the 6th century. And they are all written by, not Belshazzar, but by Nabonidus. Nabonidus is the last king. In fact, Herodotus, who is just living 100 years later, 100 years later, in the 5th century, he refers to Nabonidus and mentions that he's the last of the Babylonian kings. It was Nabonidus that was king when Babylon was destroyed. No reference anywhere to a man named Belshazzar. Only the Bible talks about Belshazzar. Which seemed to suggest we've got the wrong king. The historians have found an error in Daniel. It's a pretty glaring error. Looks like they got us over a barrel, don't they? <laughs> Except for one little barrel. One insy little bear, only about this big, that's there in the British Museum. 
Most people walk right by it, and I stop them and say, take a look at that barrel. Don't walk by. You've got to look at that barrel. This little barrel is a little barrel written in cuneiform, rounded barrel, little brown barrel that was found in the city of Ur. Until they discovered Ur, they didn't know this barrel existed. It was found in the ziggurat there in Ur. And when they looked at it and they started interpreting or translating the cuneiform, they found that this was a prayer by Nabonidus. It's a prayer by Nabonidus for his son Belshazzar. There it is. It's the only place, any anywhere place in the world that mentions Belshazzar by name. He's the son of Nabonidus. And it's on that little drum there in the British Museum. But that still doesn't solve the problem. Because why is it no one knows about Belshazzar? Why didn't Herodotus not know about Belshazzar? Well, to understand that, you need to go about 15 feet away to another glass cabinet. And there's another tablet. This tablet, I think, number 26. On that tablet, in cuneiform, it mentions, written by Nabonidus, it says for the last 10 years of his life, basically he was retired. He was, he was tired. So he went back down to Teman in Arabia and left the ruling of his kingdom to his son. But it doesn't mention who his son is. It just mentions that he is his son. We now know who his son is. His son is Belshazzar, which means that he and his son were co-regents. Now do you understand when Daniel says, in, Dan, when, uh, in Daniel 5, 16, when Belshazzar says, you'll be number three in my kingdom. He and his father were one and two. What does that say to you? Well, I know what it says to me. It proves to me that whoever wrote the book of Daniel had to have been privy to that knowledge, had to been living in the 6th century to have known that both Belshazzar and Nabonidus were co-regents at that time. That's why Daniel would be number three. That's how accurate the book of Daniel is. But it's even more than that. Why is it, you need a question, why is it that Herodotus did not know this? Remember what I said earlier. Everything that you find in these artifacts, these large artifacts, whether they're stellos or murals or tablets or, or um, obelisks, what are they? They are nothing more than uh, bragging accounts of a king's conquests. Belshazzar was a co-regent with his father. He hadn't done any conquest yet. Why? He would not dare do any conquering because if he conquered anything, who would get the credit? His father would get the credit. So he's waiting for his father to die. Once his father died, then he would go out and start conquering, and then there would be many things written about him. But before that could happen, Darius and Cyrus then came and destroyed Babylon, including himself. That's why even a hundred years later, Herodotus didn't even know about Belshazzar. Nobody knows about Belshazzar but the book of Daniel. Thank God the book of Daniel is accurate. Thank God for that little drum over here and that little piece of uh, tablet just 15 feet apart. Not only support the authenticity for the book of Daniel, but place the book of Daniel in the 6th century. Proving that these are prophecies about the Greeks and the Romans. Now, why is it I like the book of Daniel in particular? I like the book of Daniel because Muslims are always questioning my Lord Jesus Christ. They're always questioning his divinity. And they're saying, if you look at the New Testament, the title that Jesus gives to himself more than any other is the Son of Man. Isn't that right? About 25 times you will see that Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man. Now, I like to know who the Son of Man is. Muslims claim that he's nothing more than a man. Well, they've not read the book of Daniel. Because in chapter 7, verse 14 of the book of Daniel, it is very clear who the Son of Man is. It defines it right there in the book of Daniel. For he will come, the Son of Man will come in the clouds. He will be, he is from everlasting to everlasting, who will have dominion over all tribes, nations, peoples, and tongues. That is as divine a claim as you can make. The Son of Man can be nothing more than God himself. So when Jesus claimed to be the Son of Man, not a Son of Man, we're all sons of men. When he claimed to be the Son of Man, 
He was claiming to be God. The Jews knew that. They trusted the book of Daniel. So need the Muslims. They need to trust the book of Daniel. We now know it's historical. We now know it's accurate. Thank God it's accurate because now I know exactly who Jesus was claiming to be. Good stuff, isn't it? That's why I like the Old Testament.